what I think is happening is this re-understanding of coming together around what uh, Australian agriculture should look like by bringing, bringing the best of indigenous knowledges and sciences and, and agricultural practices, bringing the best of Western agriculture and science. We have this huge groundswell of interest in Regen Ag and it's an awesome opportunity for us to have a market that drives change from consumers' point of view. You're listening to the SEI podcast series, brought to you by the Sydney Environment Institute at the University of Sydney. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. My name is Justin C. I'm a postdoc in climate change adaptation here at the Sydney Environment Institute. Before we begin the discussion, I would like to acknowledge that additional custodians of the land where the University of Sydney is situated, which is Gadigal land, as well as the Darug people, of the land that I'm speaking to you tonight. I also acknowledge that additional owners of country throughout Australia, lands on which each of you are living and listening from tonight, and recognize their continuing connection to lands, waters, and communities. I pay my respect to elders past and present and to any indigenous people in this call tonight. Alongside SEI's team, I helped curate SEI's Climate Adaptation Series, which highlights thought leaders across research, business, policy, and communities as we discuss climate change adaptation at various scales. This is the last panel in the series. But in October, we will continue similar discussions for a special public panel for Disaster Risk Reduction Day. So sign up to SEI's newsletter for more information. This evening's panel is hosted by Sydney Environment Institute in partnership with the Sydney Institute of Agriculture. As many of you know, SEI is a leader in multidisciplinary environmental research. And Sydney Institute of Agriculture brings together agricultural research from across the University of Sydney and contributes valuable knowledge to the agriculture and food sector. As both the climate and biodiversity crisis worsen, so too does food insecurity, affecting the world's most disadvantaged groups. Tonight's panel will address the question, how do we adapt our food systems in ways that do not only respond to the increasing pressures of climate change, but also contribute in restoring our ecosystems? While the agriculture industry is a key contributor to climate change, tonight's panelists will focus on the opportunities and challenges of regenerative agriculture as a way to improve soil quality increase biodiversity, and contribute to mitigation and adaptation efforts. So without further ado, I would like to introduce the chair of tonight's panel, Dr. Rebecca Cross from the School of Geosciences at the University of Sydney. Rebecca is a rural and environmental geographer with a keen passion for understanding how local knowledges and innovation can be harnessed for sustainable, regenerative, and indigenous transitions to agriculture and natural resource management. Welcome, Rebecca and our speakers. Thanks for that introduction, Justin, and good evening, everyone. And thank you for joining our webinar tonight. I'd also like to pay my respects to the Gadigal people on whose unceded sovereign country I beam in from tonight. I want to acknowledge that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have cared for and continue to care for country in ways that we must all learn from to ad adapt to an uncertain future 
and in fact to ensure that there is a future for generations to come. So tonight we present an enriching conversation about adaptation in the agri-food sector, a sector that faces a multitude of complex interwoven sustainability challenges. We will explore adaptation to climate change and ecological loss, as well as adapting to shifting societal values, including consumer demand for healthy and ethical products. And for the, furthermore, the need to examine and critique the food system's level of diversity, inclusion and equity. To fuel and drive this conversation, we have three brilliant panellists joining us tonight. Uh, first up is Josh Gilbert. So Joshua Gilbert is a Warramai man and senior researcher at the UTS Jambana Institute of Indigenous Education and Research and is completing his PhD at Charles Sturt University, focusing on the post-colonial involvement of Indigenous peoples in Western agricultural systems. He was recently recognised internationally for his work and announced in the inaugural 50 Next, People Shaping the Future of Gastronomy cohort. Second up is Will Thorncraft, a super passionate young farmer. Will is 30 years old and married with one child with another on the way. He and his wife own 350 beautiful acres near Dubbo, where they raise free-range pigs, free-range chickens and organic lamb and they also conduct soil carbon farming. Will owns a business called Next Gen Regen, which aims to help produce the next generation of regenerative farmers who focus on producing chemical and drug-free nutrient-dense food naturally while helping to improve the environment and landscape. Third up is our own Dr. Tom O'Donoghue. Tom is a postdoctoral research associate at the University of Sydney. Having completed his PhD on regenerative agriculture and farmscape function, Tom is now looking for digital ways to quantify the rebuilding of natural cycles in our farmscapes through regenerative management. By working with many biological and digital hands of all shapes and sizes, his work seeks to lighten the load of some of the biggest challenges facing humanity. So we're going to have a, a, a good panel discussion, followed by some time at the end to address some of the questions um, that you've already sent in. So thank you to those who have sent some in. But to get us started, and as Justin mentioned, regenerative agriculture is a bit of a focal point for our discussion tonight. So for those who are not familiar, regenerative agriculture aligns with the principles of agroecology. And that is, just as the word suggests, the integration of agricultural production and environmental conservation on the same patch of land rather than on separate patches of land. It is viewed as a much needed paradigm shift in agriculture because it prioritizes ecosystem complexity and functioning and enables farmers to glean a harvest from the promotion of soil health, biodiversity and general abundance. While the principles are clear, the farming and business practices which constitute regenerative agriculture are debated. There are also questions as to how and whether in our current context, regenerative agriculture can feed the world and what regenerative agriculture means in light of industrial food production, which underpins our current food system. Can large scale conventional agriculture transition to being regenerative? Is regenerative agriculture the adaptation we need? What are its limitations and who is or should be driving an adaptation agenda? 
Unpacking these questions tonight are our three fabulous panellists who will be sharing their insight, knowledge and critique. So to get us started, I'd like to invite each of our panellists to respond to this next question. So maybe starting with Will, um, what do you think are the major transitions needed in agriculture to adapt our food systems to climate change? Yeah, thank you, Beck. Um, yeah, I guess obviously regenerative ag is the key to be able to adapt to climate change. Um, there's sort of three main ways that we do it here. Um, so firstly, we diversify income. So if we're reliant, if we're, say, a cattle or a sheep producer, um, during obviously dry times, you you don't have food for your livestock. Um, you can containment feed them and stuff, but grain prices are high um, and often stock prices are really low. Like we look at stock prices now, you know, a good trade lamb sort of eight months ago would have sold for $180. Um, there was some sold in Dubbo last week for a dollar. <laughs> so, um, yeah, that's the way we do it on our farm. So we do the free-range pigs, the free-range eggs. Um, obviously, have lamb, wool. Like, wool prices are still good. Um, and we also, uh, my wife and I still work full-time jobs off-farm. So, um no matter what the situation is, we'll be able to adapt and survive. We do employ workers on the farm, um, but with the pigs and the chickens, we're we're feeding them anyway, um, so we can we can last a lot longer through droughts. The second point is we work directly with the consumers or the butchers, so we're not relying on having to take our livestock to the sale yards. Um, during you know stock prices are incredibly low now, but butchers are still paying the same price for meat and consumers are still paying the same price for meat. Um, so working directly with them, you can sort of help get through um, tougher times. Um, and the third one is focusing on storing more soil carbon. If we store more soil carbon, we have more water holding capacity, more nutrients available. Um, you know, I think it's for every 1% soil carbon, you get an extra 7,500 litres per hectare per year. So that's a hell of a lot. So obviously you'll be able to last longer during droughts and then recover quicker. Um, there's things that farmers probably should, some things that we probably should be doing is, you know, um, having better storage facilities um, and storing more like with, with grazing charts and that now measuring rain, we can sort of half predict when we're going to come into a dry spell sort of four to six months ahead of it. Um, so during that time, you know, grain prices are still all right. So you could buy in and, and um, store a, a bulk, which can allow you to get through the droughts, um, and also setting up good containment feeding systems um, with you know plenty of shade and shelter and stuffy animals to get them through the drought, so you can let your paddocks recover. It's probably another major part, but that also provides you know you also need a lot of um, money to do that, which is farmers don't always have it. Um, so because yeah, when when the drought does finally break, you know stock numbers are usually at a record low, so they're quite a, very expensive to buy back in. Um, and we've just seen we've had three good seasons and the taps just switched off. <laughs> so, um, you know, you could be a cattle producer and buy in when the season's good. Um, you know, you don't get a turnaround for that cow to a calf for two to three years. So, you know, you could finally put your stock numbers back up and then go to sell and then, you know, you find that you've lost a lot of money. Yeah, perfect. Thanks, Will. Um, I might pass to Tom. So, yeah, look, I totally agree with everything Will said. Diversifying income, screen, income streams, um, 
working on your margins and stuff like that and big time soil carbon that's like major regen ag focus and i guess some of the ways that um people are trying to do that is to look at practices that we were had in place before industrialization so like cover cropping is coming back in a big way people are talking about um crop livestock integration which is pretty crazy in some parts of the world um and then non-synthetic fertilizer sources and um even soil biology inoculation methods so the idea of putting the life back in the soil that's missing um, and then giving it what it needs to thrive and draw down the carbon like Will was saying. Um, and then something that Josh can probably speak a bit more to, um, it's not just what we did prior to industrialization, it's what other people who manage the land for an extremely long period of time did. People are looking for inspiration in those places as well and um and that's that's happening around the world and i'll let josh talk more about it but it's something i'm very excited about very passionate about um but i suppose regen is just the tip of what's happening in the world because this whole journey towards sustainability has happened has been going on for quite a while like think back to books like silent spring um or then the un when they brought in things uh, well, I think Our Common Future was a great report that came out and then the Rio Convention in 1992 really ticked things along um, for sustainability, at least, uh, in the global consciousness. Um, and yet, you know, there's been a whole lot of other different types of agriculture, if you will, that have come into play that have been trying to make things more sustainable. Um, a great story is uh, Conservation Ag in Australia, which um, is no-till, uh, trying to maintain soil cover and diversify rotations. Um, that was a big one. Then during the 80s, off the back of sustainability conversations, we got a whole bunch of other interesting approaches to agriculture, agroecology, syntropics, that's when Regen sort of got its start. Um, and all of these uh, focus on our natural resources, water, carbon, biodiversity, the things that agriculture rely upon. Um, and I guess the difference is the focus that they put on maintaining productivity, which is sort of where we're at at the moment. We need to feed the world, but we realise that the things that are <laughs> feeding the system that feeds us are becoming much more variable, as Will was saying. And that's where it comes down to um, what the individual land manager can do to bring these practices into the system to get the goals that they want so that we can all go forward. Yeah, I think that's sort of about it. <laughs> I suppose one thing that I haven't mentioned is that organic agriculture was sort of probably the first break. That occurred a bit longer, a bit further in the past. But these are all different approaches to agriculture and approaches to sustainability. Wonderful. Thanks, Tom. And we'll pass over to you, Josh. Yeah, thanks back. And can I start by acknowledging country, uh, paying my respects to elders past and present on these lands on Wurramai Barre, Wurramai country here uh, in Gloucester and extend that to where everyone's joining from tonight. Uh, I think for me, uh, it, this is the, you know, and I think um, Tom kind of, you know, shared this kind of story of what's happening here on this country that what we're, we're kind of doing really is working towards a broader perspective of what 
uh, Australian agriculture should be or, or could be into the future. Uh, I say that for a few reasons. Uh, I say it to start off with by thinking about the way in which this, this country uh, and the many countries across Australia um, were, were kind of developed and formed and, and created food systems by Indigenous people and the success that MOB had right across the country in developing food systems that were so localised uh, and so perfect with this environment. Uh, some of the early literature from just down the coast, uh, down around Newcastle area, for instance, tells of these stories of mob going down and swimming and getting two crayfish, one in each hand, uh, bigger than your fist uh, to feast on. And that's the kind of environment that we had here. And remarkably, it didn't take long for the impact of uh, Western agricultural systems to really um, impact the landscape in the way that we we kind of see it now. So there, there is actually a record here on our country, which uh, it, it was one of the first colonized and farmed, I guess, in terms of where we see farming today. It's the first land really dedicated to exporting agricultural commodities back overseas. Uh, so the, the million acres here given to the biggest agricultural company at the time, still one of the biggest agricultural companies today, get given this land and, um, and start farming it in terms of what we recognize as farming systems today. And in less than 10 years, there are journal entries that go back to the, the uh, colony to say, gee, I wish that we had these kind of fire stick farming practices, uh, obviously not referred to as fire stick farming, but t talked about in terms of bushfires that were happening on these lands before they came here because they, they knew um, that the indigenous practices here were actually really sustainably looking at the landscape and how it could adapt. So what I, what I think is happening is this re-understanding of coming together around what uh, Australian agriculture should look like by bringing, bringing the best of indigenous knowledges and sciences and, and agricultural practices, bringing the best of Western agriculture and science and understanding and really kind of throwing it together and saying, hey, we know that this, this uh, world that we're in is so impacted by climate change. We're having these major catastrophic climate events. How do we actually work within those systems, uh, utilizing the 40, 60,000 years of indigenous knowledge, utilizing the last 200 years of um, you know, practices that have done terrible things, but, but have also been able to feed this boosting economy and this boosting population that we have here. And then we look out into the future and say, we're going to keep having these challenges. How do we actually work together to, to make sure that we can continue farming into the future? So that for me is where I think we are and what I think uh, Regen is starting, uh, you know, in, as long as, as well as all the other practices Tom mentioned, it's just moving further on the continuum to getting to that uh, perfect definition here in Australia. Wonderful. Thanks, Josh. Um, and so you, you've raised some really salient points um, around which directions we should be heading in, but in terms of um, widespread adaptation and, and having these transitions um, supported, um, who do you think should or who, who will or should drive this change across the sector? Um, and how do you think this change should happen? And we, we might start with you, Tom, for, for what you envisage um, should be some of those steps that we make. 
One of the big drivers for land managers is um, their social license to operate. Um, they cop it on Facebook, <laughs> everywhere. You've got um, supermarkets demanding certain things of them, um, their produce especially, and um, they're, they're well aware that consumers are just becoming more and more informed. Um, and there's a diversification of um, information streams for them now. You know, you've got the supply, you've got point of sale, um, you've got industry bodies, you've got lobby groups, um, uh, formal ones and then unofficial ones all over social media. Um, and I suppose that those drivers are, well, one, they're getting back to the growers, the farmers, but they're also coming back to corporates. And if you do a bit of digging, you can find that there are a lot of major corporate agriculture companies that are going down the regen path. Um, Cargill and uh, General Mills are big uh, grain, uh, all grain buyers in the States, and they're both investing heavily in regen ag. Um, they're actually forking out cash to help farmers transition, which is pretty incredible in their um, major production regions. Um, and then some names that you might be a bit more familiar with, uh, uh, Ralph Lauren, Wrangler, Patagonia are all really getting on board with regen uh, products. Uh, and you know, it, depending where you're living in Australia, you might frequent um, a Harris Farm supermarket um, and you'd probably notice that they've got a lot of regen produce on the shelves there. I think it's really excellent that this market has developed. And, you know, Will's sourcing his own markets, and that's what a lot of producers are having to do. But now that you've got places like Harris Farm, who are providing that food for everyone, um, there, are, there are ways that growers can get into a market like that. Um, but I guess the next question is going to be, are all these... Oh, how do we know that people are buying the same thing when they buy their regen produce? A um, couple of people have already thought of answers to this too. <laughs> um, one is affiliated with Patagonia, that's a Regen Organic Alliance in the States. And then there's the Savory Institute, which um, is a holistic, oh, well, Alan Savory came up with holistic grazing. Um, and they've got practice and change-based uh, criteria for entry to, for their certification and things like that, um, which is a great step. Um, I wonder if maybe they could be more robust. Maybe we can have a chat about that later. Don't have time right now. <laughs> um, but, you know, even if they are as robust and they're great and that's the way forward, um, I suppose one of the main things that we need to be concerned with is that we have this huge groundswell of interest in Regen Ag and it's an awesome opportunity for us to have a market that drives change from consumers' point of view. Uh, and the only thing that I really want to be worried about um, at this stage is the idea of greenwashing. So you could take something like organic agriculture and a lot of people will probably notice that you could buy an organic product in a shop or you know, maybe when you're not in the fresh produce area, you could be looking at labels that say eco or they say natural and um, that waters things down a little bit. And um, that confusion is an excellent way to discourage engagement because when people have to make decisions quickly, sometimes it all gets a bit too hard. So 
That's sort of my wrap. I think um, I think we as consumers are generating markets, um, and I just would really like it to make sure that that doesn't disappear. But I mean, Will can tell me much more about that. I think as someone who has to sell things into markets, I'm just an academic. <laughs> Thanks, Tom. Yeah, Will. Um, <laughs> so what does this look like from your perspective as, as a producer trying to generate those markets? I think it is tough. Like we've had a hard time trying to sell our pork. Um, obviously, they cost a lot more to produce because we're moving around the paddocks uh, most weeks, um, setting up electric fencing, moving waters. Um, there's more time and labour associated with growing it compared to in a shed. Um, and obviously in a paddock, they run around and eat grass and eat all different things so you can't you don't get the growth straight out of them in a paddock as you would in a shed um so they cost a lot more produce and the butchers i think that i work with get it and uh, when they taste it there's a big difference but our pork might be quite fatty because they're darkest like they're blackhead pigs um bit of the hair shows up in the meat where white pigs it doesn't but white pigs can't really handle being outside but because it doesn't present as well as shed raised pork and people walk into the store with 50 bucks and they see a $9 pork chop and then an $18 pork chop, they, they generally go for the $9 pork chop. Um, obviously, you know, Dubbo's um, probably not an area, like a, not, not a foodie area either. Like if we're in Sydney or Mudgee or Orange, you know, we, you'd probably be all right. Um, but I find it quite hard. Um, but we do the free range chickens as well, which at the moment's really good. Um, the fact that the governments are brought in that they're going to be banning caged eggs. Um, obviously, you know, Woolies and Coles are going to ban in the next two years. The price is going to go up to 10 to 15 bucks, which, you know, I think a big driver of it is, is government as well. Um, and, you know, that's going to put the prices of eggs up. Um, and to give you an idea, we're selling them at six dollars thirty a dozen now. Um, so if we'll sell them for ten dollars, we'll be that'd be awesome. Like I'd go get more chickens and more farms, and you know, we love having them on the paddocks because they're fertilising it all for us, and we're moving them every week, and it's a nice, they're a nice, clean animal, beautiful egg, and it's you know, it's um the people the demands there for it. There's a big difference between a caged egg and a free range egg. Um, but yeah, like the same with the lambs can be a bit, bit harder to sell. Like we even, with the pork, we did the QR code, tried to show them that, you know, they're out in the paddocks, they're natural. Um, that's all. We don't use any chemical sprays or synthetic fertilisers. We're rotating around and they're on green grass, there's bush, there's shrubs, and, yeah, like not many people actually scanned it and looked at it. Um, so we can't, we've sort of cut back on our numbers of pigs and gone more into chickens. Um, but, yeah, and we've been, like we've been trying to speak with Woolies, We've spoken to Harris Farm Markets. We've spoken to like Feather and Bone, which are another good company that support farmers like us, but they just can't sell enough of it. They already got their producers that do it and um, there's not enough people buying. And, you know, consumers are the key and educating consumers is the key too. Um, I think that's a big driver. Um, you know, the information's out there. If we, um, you know, in 2021, David Attenborough did that speech in front of all the world leaders and pretty much said we've got one generation to sort of fix what we do um and you know from that yeah and, we, and he demonstrated the need to be drawing down carbon as our carbon levels are quite higher um you know australia initially agreed 28 percent reduction by 2030 um 
And then with new government, I think they boosted up to 43%. So how's it all going to get drawn down? And um, we're doing the carbon, but there's very, very few people in the area who are doing it. Um, so our goal is if governments that are pushing this carbon stuff, which they are, they're starting to now, you know, we're hoping to be the first ones to brand our product as carbon positive. So then that can hopefully attract, you know, the people that are worried about the climate and um, whatnot. Um, but, yeah, the thing is industrial ags allowed us to produce cheap food. So and people have got so used to buying cheap food that, hang on, why am I paying double for this now? Um, things are already tight, but... Um, it's quite interesting. People have been going nuts on buying Isa Brown hens at the moment. Going, I'm not paying ten, fifteen dollars for eggs. I'm going to grow my own, which is which I think is really good. Um, so yeah, I just think it's got a long way to come. Um, again, consumers are the key to it. Like, there's lots of good stuff out there. It's just not getting enough attention. And you know, Instagram on Netflix is probably the biggest controversial documentary. Um, which goes against industrialised ag and, you know, the industrial ag people sort of won't look at it or agree with it or do anything and then they just keep doing what they're doing. Um, if consumers can change and the regenerative farmers that are doing it right, if they can get rewarded for it, that might encourage other farmers to jump on board and go, oh, righto, yeah, this is this is the go. I'm... And all farmers want to look after their land, um, you know, but they've also got to feed their families too. So, um and, and hold on to the farm. Like I've, I've been in the industrial ag sector most of my life um, and seen a lot of families, friends and that lose their farms and things like that. So it is harder for the smaller guys to hang on and there's a lot of corporate corporatization of, of modern fa of family farms. So it'd be good to fight back and sort of help, help, yeah, show the way, I guess. Thanks, Will. Um... And so you bring up, yeah, uh, quite a catch-22 there around, you know, um, you know, paying the real price that food costs to actually um, generate um, versus, you know, the rising costs of living. Um, I wonder if you, if you want to comment on this, Josh. I'll pass over to you. I just want to reiterate, it really is a consumer. And I think, you know, the pressure that, uh, you know, Will, for instance, like what you're doing on your farm, no longer are you the, you know, the farm manager, but, you know, making sure that your livestock are all okay. You're now looking after your, you know, your land, you know, in, in new ways and making sure that, um, you know, things are right there. You're also trying to be a marketing professional and, you know, sell your story and, you know, all of that, like there, there is so much pressure I think on producers, the the more we um we chart down this path and, and that real information session and uh, ability to con uh, convert and, and to you know provide that understanding to consumers is just so important. So uh, I just want to yeah take my hat off to you mate and and to all those that are doing it because it is a tough gig and I know you know we struggle on our farm to to tell our story a lot of the times as well. But you know that that real ability about what that connection to land is and why you're doing these new practices is just so important. And uh, I think what we need is we need consumers to, to obviously start supporting growers uh, and the ability uh, or the ways in which we do that is by supporting good farmers out there who are sharing their story, making that those practices more common uh, and really getting that messaging through on all ends. So that's really the practice um, that we need. 
I think it, the other thing we, we need uh, is to really work on the diversity of the agricultural sector at large um, to then provide new, unique understanding and perspectives uh, to help inform government and corporate policy uh, to really shift what some of these companies are, are doing and how they're thinking. So one of the exciting things uh, that, that's happening, I think, in, in my space is that we ha are slowly getting organizations committing to reconciliation action plans uh, and to look at diversity in agriculture at large. Uh, and I, I hope that that will kind of raise or, or provide the ability for, for young mob or, you know, diversity uh, right across it, the spectrums to come in and start questioning some of agriculture's uh, practices and really start saying, well, how do we connect with consumers who, who don't fit the mold or, or what are those stories that we need to be sharing? Uh, I think all of that's going to keep not only promote and, and build our social license, but also make sure that we're connecting with consumers in new and new, unique ways. In terms of the, the cost of living pressures, I, I think, you know, the, the, there's so many uh, different conversations around this. Obviously, we've got this massive uh, inflationary period matched with uh, rising interest rates. We have you know household budgets stressed and stretched. Um, but what I, I think we should be doing is providing incentives for farmers to go down these pathways, giving them the prop up or, or the leg up that they need to, to continue going down that. Uh, so that they can produce affordable food. And really, I, I think I, I use the term affordable food not to say it should be cheap because our food shouldn't be cheap. Uh, we actually have no idea how much our food should be worth. We we underpay for it every day that we go down to the big supermarkets and um, you know put, push our groceries through. And what we need to be doing is actually having that relationship with the farmer, really understanding what they're doing on their farm, why they're doing it, having that yarn with them and, and actually giving them a fair price for their food, what they've worked out to be a fair price rather than what somebody's been able to haggle or negotiate by a bulk load uh, down to the supermarket warehouse and, and trying to put the pressure back down on the farmer. So that's the shift that needs to take place. We, we do honestly need to pay more for our food. We do need to build those relationships. Um, and the only way of doing that is supporting small local farmers who are doing it really well and making sure that um, you know they're propped up so that they can feed their families while taking a bit of the pressure yourself as a consumer. Thanks Josh, thanks all. Um, so I guess off the back of that conversation what what are some changes that you would like to see reflected in policy to actually you know facilitate some of these shifts? Um, you know, what, what, what do you think are the key opportunities for adaptation or going beyond that, even transformation of the whole agri-food sector? Um, Will, do you want to start with that question? Yeah, I, th I think like the new income streams with carbon credits and offsetting ecological ag and, you know, these biodiversity credits and stuff, like we've obviously looked into the carbon credits, um, but, you know, with the biodiversity credits and that as well, like if farmers can see people doing it and see that, you know, there's money in it and there's opportunity for them and stuff, you know, th that sort of income stream will help them through droughts and that as well um, and, and tougher times. Um, and I think um, like adapting and getting farmers to work collaboratively. Um, so if, like, for instance, we're trying to do the NGR brand and 
once you prove our points will help other farmers market it under that brand, then you create awareness of that brand. Um, so when people are people see the brand, they support it and understand it. Um, but like government, like yeah, I'd love to see shed raised pork get bean too, like favorite like caged eggs are as well. I think that'd you know we can run animals perfectly healthy out in the paddocks and they can actually help us regenerate the soils. We're feeding them anyway, so you know they're putting that unused energy back onto the soil. Um, yeah, I think that's all I got. Yeah, no, all good. I mean, yeah, that um, working collaboratively and realizing new income streams through um, payments for ecosystem services that help you offset the cost of producing, you know, um, food that is regenerative. Um, it's perfect. And Tom, um, do you want to respond to that question around, you know, policy changes or, or key opportunities that you think should be um, instigated or reflected in policy? Yeah, I think straight up and right on board with Will about getting getting livestock out of sheds. <laughs> I think number one, um, we need to close nutrient cycles on farms. Like if you're producing a product on the farm that could be fertilizing the soil, you should be getting it out there. If you've got too much of that, sell it. Like, And I mean, the nutrient loop doesn't have to just stop on farm. It could be uh, a much wider conversation, but it's probably not for now. <laughs> um, I think, uh, I think a lot of the concern that farmers have about adopting these new practices or changing what they're doing is um, it does come down to feeding the family. Like they've got to maintain their bottom line so that they can keep doing what they're doing or they're going to go bust and the bloke who is local woman or whatever, like whoever the neighbour is, is going to take that property and they're probably farming in a much more profit driven way to be in that position and that land goes out of the system, the regen kind of system. but. One of the things that my work is pretty focused on is quantifying change in landscapes, particularly farmscapes, uh, looking at what is happening with soil carbon, looking at what's happening with biodiversity. And um, at the moment, there's a big drive for farm digitization. And a lot of that is focused on uh, now casting. So, Tell me how much moisture I have in my soil. Uh, tell me how much water I have in a tank or something like that. Whereas um, we would like to see that start transitioning to monitoring what's happening in response to practices on that farm. And if we can do that and we can bring people together in a collaborative way, um, we could use that information to potentially uh, dispel some of the fear that people have about changing their practice. Um, yeah, so that's sort of what we're doing at the moment up here in Narrabri. Wonderful. Helping farmers take that, those first steps to changing what they do and reducing the risk of those transitions. Wonderful. And Josh, I'll pass over to you. I think, I mean, fundamentally, uh, you know, government certainly has a role in this. Uh, and, and policy decisions are important. I think so too is the social pressure placed on organisations and corp big corporations. Uh, you know, certainly, you know, the, the government shifts are important, but we know 
while that it plays an important role, that, that there are kind of struggles that governments have to try and balance. And I think too often uh, that means that there is, you know, whether it be election cycles or other things, it makes it quite difficult to try and balance that out all the time. Uh, and it also means that you don't always get certainty around things. So for me, uh, you know, particularly around our food systems, we should be, you know, while, while government policy is important, we should also be looking straight at those that are the purchasing a bulk amount of foods and, and holding them responsible for what they're doing to the market and to the sector. So, uh, you know, corporate pressure on, on oh, sorry, consumer pressure on these big corporates to really hold them to account is going to be where I think we'll get most of our gains. And we know that the industry is kind of doing that already. So, um, you know, it, it wasn't that long ago in the, the last seven years that we, we actually had an, a farming organization uh, of quite some size recognized that climate change was a real thing. Uh, and now seven years later, we have industry groups who are saying, well, let's go carbon neutral and let, let's have this conversation. Uh, you know, that, that kind of industry led shift uh, and, you know, consumers kind of pressuring corporates to say, we demand this of our, of our food system. So you need to go and work with industry and with the farmers to kind of change or, or shift these practices. That's where I think a lot more of this speed will come rather than hoping that government's just going to wave a magic wand and kind of be able to do it through policy quick, uh, you know, as quick as what we need it. Thanks, Josh. Um, so, so now we have a couple of questions coming in from the audience. Um, I think there's, there's a good one here for you, Will, from James Yanakoulis. Um, he says, hi, Will, love your work. What are the main issues surrounding other farmers in your area not committing to carbon storage like you are? I think it's the unknown. Um, like, are they, what are, like, they're like, oh, what am I signing up for? You know, if I, if I lose credits, am I going to have to pay them back? And um, just the fear factor of, of the unknown, I guess, is probably a big hesitation to what they do. You know, people throw around that farming removes carbon um which that's somewhat like industrialized will um but yeah and it's just not enough information for them out there or not enough farmers are very much if they see someone they know do it and they're successful they will then go do it like if a you know if, if a, some advisor they don't know rocks up and tells them to do this um yeah they won't do it do, do you want to comment on that one as well tom I mean, I, I guess sometimes I'm in the position of the advisor turning up and telling some farmer to start cover cropping and they go, oh, I don't know about that. But then after you do a little field day talk or something like that, people in the, in the crowd start having a chat and they get onto it. And then all of a sudden, a bunch of new people are interested because they've, they've seen it work. And that's that local data thing. And I suppose that, that feeds into the next question, which I think we've talked a little around, but what can be done to encourage the more large-scale or corporate farmers um, to promote sustainable farming practices that improve our food systems? Tom, do you want to try and address that first? I think it comes back to markets, really. People need to be able to sell something into things. And I think, you know, I think food is a, a the end goal where we need to get to with region ag and things like that. Um, one space 
maybe the fibre space, is um, higher value items and people spend a little bit longer thinking about their purchase of them and things like that. And there's actually been, um, I know, I know that there are some, there's a lot of developments in the cotton industry about trying to drive towards sustainability. Um, and in fact, the Cotton Farmer of the Year last year, <laughs> believe it or not, um, that's, this is Kita, this is Sundown and Pastoral, they, um, they're chasing carbon neutral cotton, which is incredible. Uh, and they have some really great tech um, to identify their products in store, which is called Fibre Trace. So look, the, the markets are pushing farmers to start doing this. And if someone, if, if a grower at the top of their game like that is doing it, they can see that it's worthwhile. We just need to keep giving them the markets to work towards. And I think, unfortunately, it is a lot harder in the food space. Yeah, thanks, Tom. I was just listening to a webinar in the US on regenerative cotton. So uh, very interesting what's happening in, in those mainstream industries. Um, so this is one probably for you, Josh. How do you suggest we contend with the political power of big ag, which we can reasonably expect to be mobilised against any calls for the nature of the industry to be changed? How do we how do we challenge um, the hold they have on the sector? I mean, the dollar's king, unfortunately, but I think you know that that's obviously a really clear indication of people stepping away from practices or tr transitioning to, to something that's better or, or what the consumer feels better. So I, I think fundamentally there is a role uh, that we as producers need to, to have around, you know, educating consumers quite broadly around what those steps or, you know, what other the farming uh, systems that are in place. Kind of, I, I mean, farmers markets are a really interesting way of looking at this to, to see that relationship build, to see those conversations build really practically on the ground, people being able to ask questions around what are you doing, why are you doing it that way, uh, what, you know, what's the, f the future of your farm look like and, and how can we be part of that? All of those kind of questions are really important to looking at uh, what those relationships look like and, and then also kind of making sure that that really charts the path around what the future of the sector needs to be. Really, the more we can push uh, those kind of relationships and those conversations, I think the better off we're going to be around changing government policy and, and also changing consumer, uh, sorry, corporate uh, perspectives around this. That if they see the dollars leaving the supermarket to go somewhere else, they're going to quickly try and get you back in. So uh, that, that kind of relationship is really important. And I suppose that there's a question here from Roby, um, but also a question uh, from Amanda Briggs at QUT around um, going back to consumers and how they can afford um, the true cost of ag and how we get that equity um, at the other end, at the consumer end, so that it's not just those with uh, the high incomes that it can afford to eat well and those with the lower incomes that... Um, can only afford the cheaper, uh, less healthier food, less nutrient-dense food as such. Um, I don't know if you want to start with that, Josh, or...? <laughs> I would say I, I think food's one of those ones that we really kind of 
are, are, are willing to have the conversation about, I think. We're, we're happy to see our rents go up and, and criticise landlords uh, or, you know, talk about how, how bad things are. And, you know, I, I don't say that, um, you know, to poke fun. I, I, I really mean, you know, that, that we see it happen and we kind of are like, okay, that's just what's happening in the environment. We see uh, fuel prices go up and down. You know, that, that's just a, you know, environmental factor that we can't control. But when we see food prices uh, not, you know, starting to move, I, I think we, we don't actually understand that on the other end of that being produced is a, a family farmer, um, you know, trying to work their, their absolute guts out to, to make sure that that food's there and the best quality it can be. So I, I think for me, um, you know, that's a really the conversation that, that needs to be had, that, you know, we just came out of this massive great period of time where interest rates are really low uh, and we we're slashing cash around. We weren't paying great money for food then. So, you know, it's this kind of shift that we uh, we really need to start thinking about. And I think Will kind of shared it earlier. The price for your eggs, Will, you said, I think, six fifty, hoping to go up to 15 bucks. Mate, if you can make $10 a dozen, how great will that be? It saves the consumer a few dollars because they're not spending $15 a at the big supermarkets and, and everyone's kind of happy. So, so that's a transition that we kind of need to get to where, um, where, you know, we're favoring or, or providing better support to the farmer that's doing a great thing that's coming and meeting with us and sharing their story. Uh, and, and, you know, we're, we're saying to the, the big end of town that are kind of saying, go and prop in rows and, uh, you know, farm how, how you think, uh, you know, these systems should play out. Uh, and, and, you know, instead of, you know, we really, really need to penalize them. So, so that's the kind of, I, I think, conversations we need to be having that, uh, you know, I, I understand people are, are, you know, in a tight financial position, but at the same time, so are our farmers who are struggling to make a buck, uh, who are getting absolutely screwed down on pricing every time that they rock up somewhere to try and sell their produce. And there needs to be a healthy balance around what that looks like. Thanks, Josh. Um, and I suppose a more practical question coming back to perhaps the limitations of ag from Molly F. She says, or, he, or they say, could you speak more to the issue of whether regen can feed the world or even Australia and are other complementary solutions necessary? So perhaps that's one for you, Tom, discussing what's happening in across the spectrum of ag. <laughs> I think there is general concern in the literature <laughs> that um, regenerative systems won't be as productive. Uh, but I I question whether or not we're going to have more we're going to have more resources available to be producing more food. And if we're diversifying our systems, growing multiple things, not relying on one crop. Maybe it's a different ball game and we're not playing by the same rules anymore. Um, and then, you know, we could start talking about nutrient-dense food as well. <laughs> um, so, look, I, 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 think we, I think we need to make measurements so that we actually know. And I, I guess one thing that I could go back to was the idea of um, conservation agriculture and organic agriculture. They're sort of the big two alternatives to conventional agriculture. Um, and they're the only ones that really have numbers aside, uh, alongside them based on the ecosystem services that they're providing and the yields that they're turning out. We don't know what's happening in all these other systems. 
because there's not enough money going into them to, to fund the research and stuff like that. And that's why I want to see more on-farm monitoring and I want it to be as cheap as it can be so everyone can be doing it so they know what's happening. Yeah, Will, you want to respond? Yep. Yeah, I think we absolutely can feed the world through regen farming. Like um, our farm's very marginal country, so we paid the same price for this farm two years ago as what a house in Dubbo is worth now. So it's not the most productive country. So traditionally it might have ran 100 to 200 ewes. Um, you know, it's carrying um, 2,000 hens now. Um, it's carrying 16 breeding sows. It can carry a lot more if we had the market for it. Um, and we've got 60 ewes. Um, we want to do a market garden in the future as well. Um, we've started making our own compost. Um, our grower pigs will bring into a yard on a deep bed of wood chip um, for two to three weeks before we sell them just to clean. We give them big baths and stuff so they clean all their skin and stuff so when they get processed it's nice and the hair gets removed properly otherwise it's a mess. Um, so, you know, those pigs are making us compost which we can then use to grow vegetables and sell the vegetables. And, you know, we're employing three different people here um, now, now to provide employment. Um, and we could, like, we could have some cattle. We could, yeah, we could take on more hens if we wanted to. So we're, because we're diversifying and all that's all an ecosystem, um, you know, and our paddocks still get six to eight months rest with nothing on them. Um, so, yeah, I think the answer to that is, yeah, we can absolutely feed the world for regenerating. So, yes, so so that's great. I mean, um, you know, a reimagination of what our food systems can look like and, and as some key regen farmers say, who knows how much you can produce off a hectare? Um, what are the limits? Who knows how much carbon we can actually store in our soil? Um, and what you speak to does speak to that need to perhaps you know, look at decentralising our food systems more so that we can focus on quality and diversity more than producing a single crop in bulk um, to get the price. So um, fabulous discussion. So um, what a wonderful panel. Um, I would like to thank our panellists tonight. Thanks very much, everyone.